Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I have a dream. One day, this nation will rise up Black men thinking. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. The only way they can inherit the freedom we have known is if we fight for it, protect it, defend it, and then hand it to them with the well-taught lessons of how they in their lifetime must do the same. Black men thinking. Anytime you throw your weight behind a political party that controls two-thirds of the government and that party can't keep the promise that it made to you during election time and you are dumb enough to walk around continuing to identify yourself with that party, you're not only a chump, but you're a traitor to your race. Black men thinking. If we lose freedom here, there's no place to escape to. This is the last stand on earth. And this idea that government is beholden to the people, that it has no other source of power except the sovereign people, is still the newest and the most unique idea in all the long history of man's relation to man. Whether we believe in our capacity for self-government or whether we abandon the American Revolution and confess that a little intellectual elite in a far distant capital can plan our lives for us better than we can plan them ourselves. Black men thinking. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Black men thinking. thinking. Stanley Levy, Black Man Thinking, here on our new flagship station, the vanguard of personal freedom, personal liberty, and personal responsibility, Mojo50Radio.com. Also, we kept our we kept some of our um, previous partners and glad to have done that WDDQ talk 92.1 FM in Valdosta Georgia WJHC talk 107.5 FM North Florida talk radio freedom in America radio.com and WLBB news talk AM 1330 and FM 106.3 in Carrollton Georgia welcome aboard thank you for staying with us uh, we've made a couple of changes uh, obviously our flagship is stay has changed and we are very uh, pleased about that we are starting a little bit later, an hour later, and, uh, well, got to make room in the schedule or, uh, where we can, but I'm still here, and I'm still dedicated to giving you the best information that I can. So let's get to work, and let's talk about the anti-America presidential debate that was held on the 26th and the 27th of June. That would be the Democrats. 
Now the Democrats have 24 candidates. Last count that I heard, I can I call them mannequins because there really isn't, in the broad view, a dime's difference between the two. You could stand them all out there and have one person speaking uh, with a pull string, and you'd pretty much get the same thing from every one of them. However, what they wanted to do with this debate, of course, was to try to find differences amongst the candidates. They may have found some. NBC News did a summation or a highlights clip of the first day of the debates, and this is their report. Secretary Castro, if you were president today, oi, what would you specifically do? Thank you very much, uh, Jose. I'm very proud that in April I became the first candidate to put forward a comprehensive immigration plan. And we saw those images. Watching that image of, of Oscar and his daughter Valeria uh, is heartbreaking. It should also piss us all off. The reason that they're separating these little children from their families is that they're using Section 1325 of that act, which criminalizes coming across the border, to incarcerate the, the parents and then separate them. Some of us on this stage have called to end that section, to terminate it. Some, like Congressman O'Rourke, have not. And I want to challenge all of the candidates to do that. I, I just think it's a mistake. I think it's a mistake. And I think that, that if you truly want to change the system, then we've got to repeal that section. If not, Thank you. then it might as well be the same policy. You said recently that the reason you didn't want to repeal Section 1325 was because uh, you were concerned about human trafficking and, and drug trafficking. But let me tell you what. Section 18, uh, Title 18 of the U.S. Code, Title 21, and Title 22 already cover if human trafficking. Right. Right. No I think that you should do your homework on this issue. If you did your homework on this issue, you would know that we should repeal this section. This is for all the American citizens out there who feel you're falling behind, who feel the American dream is not working for you. The immigrants didn't do that to you. The big corporations did that to you. The 1% did that to you. Who here would abolish their private health insurance in favor of a government-run plan? Just a show of hands start off with. Look at the business model of an insurance company. It's to bring in as many dollars as they can in premiums and to pay out as few dollars as possible for your health care. There are a lot of politicians who say, oh, it's just not possible, we just can't do it, it's have a lot of political reasons for this. What they're really telling you is they just won't fight for it. Well, health care is a basic human right, and I will fight for basic human rights. It should not be an option in the United States of America for any insurance company to deny women coverage for their exercise of their right of choice. And I am the only candidate here who has passed a law protecting a woman's right of reproductive health and health insurance. And I'm the only candidate who has passed a public option. I just want to say there's three women up here that have fought pretty hard for a woman's right to choose. I'll start with that. If the control room can turn off the mics, if the control room can turn off the mics of our previous moderators, we will. The American people deserve a president who will put your interests ahead of the rich and powerful. That's not what we have right now. When you've got a government, when you've got an economy that does great for those with money and isn't doing great for everyone else, that is corruption, pure and simple. We need to call it out. We need to attack it head on. I think I'm the only one, I hope I'm the only one on this panel here that had seven people shot in their neighborhood just last week. Someone I knew, Shahad Smith, was killed with an assault rifle at the top of my block last year. For millions of Americans, this is not a policy issue. This is an urgency. And for those who have not been directly affected, they're tired of living in a country where their kids go to school to learn about reading, writing, and arithmetic, and how to deal with an active shooter in their school. 
We can't treat this as an across-the-board problem. We have to treat it like a public health emergency. Senator. That means bring data to bear, okay. and it means make real change in this country, Thank you, whether Senator. it's politically popular or not. When we weren't in there, they started flying planes into our buildings. So I'm just saying right now, but we no have to attack us on 9-11. Well, I understand. Al-Qaeda attacked us on 9-11. I understand. That's why I and so I many other people joined the military to go I after Al-Qaeda, not the Taliban. Al-Qaeda. The Taliban was protecting those people who were plotting against us. I just don't want to be your president to be your president. I want to be your president to do the job. This is not about me. This is about getting America working again. Thank you. So let's unpack some of that. So we start with immigration and uh, Julian Castro talking about the uh, gentleman who was found with his daughter drowned near the border, Oscar and his daughter Valeria and talked about children's separation. I said, you know what, the reason they separate, he says the reason they separate is because of the laws. No, the reason they separate them is because we find a whole lot of times that people are coming with children they claim to be their offspring, and that's not true. And how would you protect the children? Because if you're going to make the, uh, the argument that there is no human trafficking involving children going on on the southern border of the United States, you live in a cave. If you're not going to separate the children, how are you going to protect them? You're going to assume everybody who shows up with a child, that that child is their, is, is their offspring? That's not true. Never mind. Government health care. They, they asked the question whether or not any of the uh, people on the stage, there were 12 of them, wanted to give up their own private health insurance for government-run health care. Only two, that would be Bill de Blasio and Elizabeth Warren, said that they wanted to. I thought this was something that uh, you know Democrats were universal on with respect to health insurance and quote-unquote health care, but apparently not. And the idea that it's a basic human right, help me understand this. How many rights do you have for which someone else has to work to provide them? How many rights do you have that compel others to provide them? That's not a right. That's making that person a slave. You owe me. I don't know why they owe you, but okay. That's your position. Then, of course, we had the, the, the normal abortion pablum that comes from the Democrat Party. It's a woman. It's a woman. Of course, the woman's not dying. The children are. And no one's representing their right to live. I guess they don't have a right to live as long as a woman has a right to kill. Well, okay. Then Warren chimes in, oh, we have an economy that doesn't work for the, that works for the people who have money, doesn't work for. Can you name an economy that works for people who don't have money anywhere in the world? There is no such economy. The whole idea of an economy is to move money and goods from people who know how to use them into the hands of people who can pay for them. And the better you get is being able to move goods, the more money you're going to make. It doesn't matter what system you're in. There is no economy that benefits those who have no money. There's an economy that benefits those who have less money and gives them the opportunity to have more. That's what we have in the United States. But Elizabeth Warren calls that corrupt. Now, as far as gun control, again, Elizabeth Warren stepping out there talking about we need to make change, whether or not it's politically popular. Politically popular, let me stop with that. Doesn't that imply that that's what the people want? So what you're saying is we should make these changes to gun laws even if the people don't want them. So much for government of, by, and for. You have something totally different now if you if you want to get on board with Elizabeth Warren. And then Tulsi Gabbard took on some 
random clown at the debate talking about, well, we, you know, we, we went to fight Al-Qaeda. We didn't go to fight the Taliban. Excuse me, Al-Qaeda, you couldn't fight Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda has no country. Al-Qaeda has no military. Al-Qaeda ha- is just a group of people hanging out in places waiting for a phone call, and then they'll go do something. The Taliban represented the government of Afghanistan. That was actually somebody the military could attack. If you joined the military, you were never going to attack al-Qaeda. You could go after the Taliban. You did, and they were removed. So that was day one. Day two, you had some of the heavier hitters show up. Biden showed up. Bernie Sanders showed up on day two. And um, NBC, again, had another highlight reel of that engagement. Senator Harris, you know what? America does not want to witness a food fight. They want to know how we're going to put food on their table. I was six years old when a presidential candidate came to the California Democratic Convention and said, it's time to pass the torch to a new generation of Americans. That candidate was then Senator Joe Biden. He's still right today. If we're going to solve the issues of automation, pass the torch. If we're going to solve the issues of climate chaos, pass the torch. If we're going to solve the issue of student loan debt, pass the torch. Vice President, would you like to sing a torch song? I would. I'm still holding on to that torch. It's part of Joe's generation. I'm all for it. Part of Joe's generation. Let me respond. The issue, if I may say, is not generational. Please, please. The issue is generational. The issue is who has the guts to take on Wall Street, to take on the fossil fuel industry, to take on the big money interests who have unbelievable influence over the economic and political life of this country. On January 20th, 2021, if you are president, what specifically would you do with the thousands of people who try to reach the United States every day and want a better life through asylum? I will ensure that the, the, this microphone that the President of the United States holds in her hand is used in a way that is about respecting the values of our country and not about locking children up, separating them from their parents. If you'd ever told me any time in my life that this country would sanction federal agents to take children from the arms of their parents, put them in cages, actually put them up for adoption, in Colorado we call that kidnapping, I, I would have told you, I would have told you it was unbelievable. Governor, you're right, it is kidnapping, and it's extremely important for us to realize that. If you forcibly take a child from their parents' arms, you are kidnapping them. And if you take a, a lot of children and you put them in a detainment center, thus inflicting chronic trauma upon them, that's called child abuse. This is collective child abuse. And when this is crime, both of those things are a crime. And if your government does it, that doesn't make it less of a crime. These are state-sponsored crimes. My community is in anguish right now because of an officer-involved shooting, a black man, Eric Logan, killed by a white officer. I'm not allowed to take sides until the investigation comes back. The officer said he was attacked with a knife, but he didn't have his body camera on. It's a mess. Look, we've taken so many steps toward police accountability that you know, the FOP just denounced me for too much accountability. We're obviously not there yet. And I accept responsibility for that because I'm in charge. Policy, you should fire the chief. So under Indiana law, this will be investigated, and there will be accountability for the officer involved. You're the mayor. You should fire the chief. If that's the policy and someone died. All of these issues are extremely important, but there are specifics. There are symptoms. I do not believe, I do not believe that the average American is a racist, but the average American is woefully undereducated about the history of race in the United States. I, 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 on the issue of race, I couldn't agree more that this is an issue that is still not being talked about truthfully and honestly. 
I, there is not a black man I know, be he a relative, a friend, or a co-worker who has not been the subject of some form of profiling or discrimination. In this campaign, we've also heard, and I'm going to now direct this at Vice President Biden, I do not believe you are a racist, but I also believe, and it is personal, and I was actually very, it was hurtful, to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. You also worked with them to oppose busing. You know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. So I will tell you that on this subject, it cannot be an intellectual debate among Democrats. We have to take it seriously. We have to act swiftly. As Attorney General of California, I was very proud to put in place a requirement that all my special agents would wear body cameras and keep those cameras on. This characterization of my position across the board, I do not praise racist. That is not true. Number one. Number two, if you want to have this campaign litigated on who supports civil rights and whether I did or not, I'm happy to do that. Okay, so we start day two, at least from the highlight reel, saying that the American people don't want to see a food fight. They want to see how government is going to put food on their table. Is that what you want? You want the government to feed you? I didn't know that. I'm not aware of that. That's not what I was looking for. They also got into plagiarism on the part of um, Joe Biden, as Swalwell, who has no shot at the nomination, uh, talked about how Joe Biden had invoked the words of John Kennedy as opposed to his own words in coming to California one time as a potential uh, contestant for the, nomina- for the nomination. Um, Bernie Sanders talked about having the guts to go after uh, big money in this country, as though he doesn't have big money himself. How do you get that third house again? Wow, must have missed that one. Uh, you heard people talking about asylum and throwing folks in cages, dealt with the same thing on the first night. You want to talk about reforming asylum? Shut off asylum. There's a People don't seem to recognize that the difference between asylum, asylee status, and refugee status is where you put in the application. If you put in the application in the country of your origin, you're a refugee. If you make the trip to the United States, get in and then make the application, you're an asylee or a potential asylee. If your application is accepted, no matter which one you do, You get the exact same benefits. In the case of the refugee, the United States government will actually provide you uh, transportation to the country. I think it probably would be safer than what they currently do now with Oscar and his daughter, Valeria. So we also have to look at police brutality. And they didn't want to touch on that much except to say that uh, Buttigieg should have fired somebody. I'm like, you know what? I don't care. I'm, I'm not saying that to be cruel. I'm saying that because I don't care. I know the st- I know the statistics, unfortunately, very well. About two to three hundred black people every year are killed by police. That's about half as many as uh, as the whites who are killed by law enforcement. Nevertheless, we don't ever hear about the whites who are killed by law enforcement. And oh, by the way, that two to three hundred is an order of magnitude fewer times three or four the number of blacks who are made homicide victims by other blacks. So why are we talking about black brutality against black people? 
oh, I'm sorry, the Democrats can't run on that, and win. Then we just want to talk about race. The Democrats love to talk about race, and now you have yet again another white woman, Marianne Williamson, who wants to educate everybody about. Let me let me say this. I'm, I'm going to say this because um, what, what was that thing that uh, Harris said? It was hurtful what she heard from Joe Biden. I'm not hurt by Marianne Williamson. You're stupid. I don't need to hear anything from a white woman about race. And everything you're going to tell me about race is just a matter of trying to make people who are black think they are still victims as opposed to allow, letting them feel that they are Americans with the same shot as anybody who just gets off the boat tomorrow. Not interested. That was what you had. Oh, by the way, there was this also this little gem from Bernie Sanders on day two. You, you can't miss this because you finally got an answer, a straight answer to a question, although you had to work for it. Will taxes go up for the middle class in a Sanders administration? And if so, how do you sell that to voters? Well, you're quite right. We have a new vision for America. And at a time when we have three people in this country owning more wealth than the bottom half of America, while 500,000 people are sleeping out on the streets today, we think it is time for change, real change. And by that I mean that health care, in my view, is a human right. And we have got to pass a Medicare for all single-payer system. (laughs) Under that system, by the way, vast majority of the people in this country will be paying significantly less for health care than they are right now. I believe that education is the future for this country. And that is why I believe that we must make public colleges and universities tuition-free and eliminate student debt. And we do that by placing a tax on Wall Street. Every proposal that I have brought forth is fully paid for. Senator Sanders, I'll give you 10 seconds just to ask the, answer the very direct question. Will you raise taxes for the middle class in the Sanders administration? People who have health care under Medicare for all will have no premiums, no deductibles, no co-payments, no out of exp- out-of-pocket expenses. Yes, they will pay more in taxes, but less in health care for what they get. Thank you, Senator. So Bernie, Tack, Bernie uh, Sanders believes that we should have Medicare for all as long as the middle class, middle class t- is willing to accept a, a tax cut. So your, your, your right is something that you must pay. Since when do you have to pay for your own rights? I mean, I have a right to fee- free speech. Do I have to pay to speak? I can't just speak? And why do I need the government to administer my rights? I mean, if I have a right, and let's say I do, let's say I do pay for it. Well, I mean, I'm paying the, I have a right to food, but I have to pay for it. And I don't pay the government for it. I don't have the government taxing me for it. It's crazy. But at least he admitted it. So I guess Medicare for all isn't free. You're going to pay more in taxes. Unspecified more, by the way. Although the cost of the program is probably in the trillions. The um, the uh, fallout from that, there were winners and losers, of course, as there are in any uh, presidential debate. I saw two clips. I don't have really time to pay them for you. I saw one from the... Um, from the Young Turks, who based, who went out and declared, uh, Sink Iger went out and declared that Elizabeth Warren and Bill de Blasio won the debate. And that was partly based on them being the only two who held up their hand when they were asked a question whether or not they would trade in their private health insurance for this Medicare for All scheme. But, of course, that's a, um, that's a very progressive viewpoint of this entire thing. Chris Christie went on The View and praised the performance of Kamala Harris. 
the interesting thing about that for me is not that he did that, but he, um, that he praised her, but what he didn't do. Nobody, neither the Young Turks nor Chris Christie on The View, went out and talked about the fact, the fact that nothing the Democrats are talking about appeal to the rest of the country. I'm not saying the topics are of no importance. I mean, yes, immigration, health care, um, race relations to an extent, the economy. Of course, the interesting thing about talking about the economy and how it needs to be changed, the economy is doing better now than it has at any point in, point in the last 30 years. You have more jobs and you have job openings. You have wages increasing faster than the rate of inflation. We've created more than 6 million jobs in the time that Donald Trump has been in the White House. There's nothing wrong with the economy. Well, we, we have inequality. Excuse me. People are not equal, not in their ability to perform, and therefore not in their outcomes. You cannot have equality of outcomes without killing personal initiative. And that's, of course, what the Democrats would prefer to do. So what we saw were the 24 mannequins split into two groups, and they did come up with some distinct, uh, some distinctions. I also hope as a result of them, some of them got the wake-up call and realized they need to go home. Swalwell needs to go home. Bill de Blasio needs to quit. Tulsi Gabbard can give it up. Hickenlooper can mail it in. There are others. And Joe Biden couldn't win a general election if he were the only person running. I remember saying before Hillary Clinton actually got the nomination that she couldn't win dog catcher in a national election. Well, she got to run in a national election. She didn't win dog catcher. Didn't win the presidency either. Here's where we are. These people don't like America, want to change America, even though America is doing well. Please explain to me how that would be helpful for you. Stanley Levy, Black Man Thinking. We'll be back right after this. I have a dream. One day, this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created in. Black men thinking. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. The only way they can inherit the freedom we have known is if we fight for it, protect it, defend it, and then hand it to them with the well-taught lessons of how they in their lifetime must do the same. Black men thinking. Anytime you throw your weight behind a political party that controls two-thirds of the government and that party can't keep the promise that it made to you during election time and you are dumb enough to walk around continuing to identify yourself with that party, you're not only a chump, but you're a traitor to your race. Black men thinking. If we lose freedom here, there's no place to escape to. This is the last stand on earth. And this idea that government is beholden to the people, that it has no other source of power except the sovereign people, is still the newest and the most unique idea in all the long history of man's relation to man. Whether we believe in our capacity for self-government or whether we abandon the American Revolution and confess that a little intellectual elite in a far distant capital can plan our lives for us better than we can plan them ourselves. Black men thinking. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Black 
Man Thinking. Thinking. Stanley Levy, Black Man Thinking, here on our new flagship, the vanguard of personal freedom, personal liberty, and personal responsibility, Mojo 50 Radio. Also, WDDQ, Talk 92.1, FM in Valdosta, Georgia, WJHC, Talk 107.5, North Florida Talk Radio, Freedom in America Radio.com, and WLBB News Talk, AM 1330 and FM 106.3 in Carrollton, Georgia. So let's discuss the reparations foolishness, uh, shall we? After years of John Conyers pushing this nonsense in every Congress since the 1980s, they have finally, and I guess you could call this a victory for the Clown Brown Caucus, also known as the Congressional Black Caucus, also known as the CBC, that they finally got at least some type of discussion. Now, will it ever come to a vote? Never has, but we'll see. And, of course, the symbolic nature of this happening on the 19th of June, what black people like to call Juneteenth, which was the date at which the Emancipation Proclamation, I think, reached out as far as Texas. And those people who were slaves were notified that they had been set free by proclamation. On that day, ABC reported regarding the upcoming hearing this way on Capitol Hill will raise the issue of reparations for slavery. This on Juneteenth, the day commemorating the end of slavery in the U.S. Chief Congressional Correspondent Mary Bruce is there covering it all. Good morning, Mary. Good morning, Robin. Well, as the nation commemorates the end of slavery, the Hill today will be examining this question of reparations. Actor Danny Glover and author ta Coates will be here to testify on the issue and the lasting impacts of slavery. Reparations are an issue that have come up recently on the Democratic campaign trail. But here on the Hill, the Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell made clear yesterday that he does not think reparations are a good idea. And he raised some eyebrows with this explanation referencing President Obama. Take a listen. We've, you know, tried to deal with our original sin of slavery by fighting a civil war, by passing landmark civil rights legislation. Uh, We've elected an African-American president. Mitch McConnell went on to reference the fact that no one currently alive was responsible for slavery, and he said it would be hard to determine who exactly to pay reparations to. Robin, his statement raised a lot of eyebrows, to say the least. And Mary, also today, House Democrats are hoping to have a breakthrough when it comes to obstruction of justice by interviewing Hope Hicks. Yeah, Robin, for the first time, lawmakers here will have a chance to question a member of the president's inner circle since the release of the Mueller report. Hope Hicks is going to be grilled here about those alleged incidents of obstruction outlined in the report, and I'm told also about those hush money payments that were made to Stormy Daniels. Hope Hicks, of course, is a familiar face by the president's side as his former communications director and close aide. She witnessed much of the president's behavior during the campaign in that first year in office. Her name is actually one of the most frequently mentioned in the report. But, Robin, there are a lot of questions here about how forthcoming she is going to be. The president has to directed her not to answer any questions about her time as one of his senior advisors, and that is not likely Mm. to go over well here with Democrats. We'll see what happens today. All right, Mary, thank you. Can I remember, just remind you of something, the 19th of June means nothing with respect to the end of slavery. The Emancipation Proclamation, which is what Juneteenth is based on, was signed on January 1st. The end of slavery was not June 19th. Moving right along, uh, Cory Booker, one of the 24 Democrat mannequins vying for the nomination, uh, wasted no opportunity to speak on this to try to get try, try to get something for himself. His campaign's going nowhere. 
Um, but he wanted to speak on this to give himself some credibility in the black community, which isn't necessarily all that behind him. I say that I am brokenhearted and angry right now. Decades of living in a community where you see how deeply unfair this nation is still to so many people who struggle, who work hard, who do everything right but still find themselves disproportionately with lead in their water, super funds in their neighborhood, schools that don't serve their genius, healthcare uh, uh, disparities that still affect their body and their well-being. We as a nation must address these persistent inequalities or we will never fully achieve the strength and the possibility. Hope is the active conviction that despair will not have the last word. I believe right now, today, we have a historic opportunity to break the silence, to speak to the ugly past, and talk constructively about how we will move this nation forward. So in Cory Booker's mind, coming up with money for what happened, uh, what ended more than, a, more than a century and a half ago, is somehow going to move the nation forward, even though we're already $22 trillion in debt. Okay. I'm sure that makes sense to somebody. Now, Robin Givens on Good Morning America on ABC mentioned Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, and Danny Glover as people who would testify for the committee, and they did. I included three um, testimonies from the committee hearing. I did not include Danny Glover because he said nothing. You can go look at, you can go listen to it to, for yourself. He he took up five minutes and said nothing and acted like a man who needed to be wheeled in and out of the chamber in the process. But let's start with Ta-Nehisi Coates, who is in many ways responsible for what's going on here because of a essay he wrote back in 2014 called The Case for Reparations. I read it. It was 16,000 words. It was garbage. But it was it was informational garbage, but all of his conclusions were garbage. Now, of course, that's an opinion. But so was his work. But here's what he had to say, at least in part, before the reparations committee. Which American democracy, prosperity, and white privilege are founded. Mr. Coates, based on your monumental essay in the Atlantic magazine, The Case for Black Reparations, could you please describe briefly some of the continuing impacts and vestiges of the enslavement era on living African Americans today? So first, first of all, um, one of the things I, I tried to make clear uh, in my testimony is that we've received the era of enslavement, the era of Jim Crow, and in fact, I would actually even add the era of mass incarceration as separate things that are somehow not tied to each other. Uh, the, the greatest damage that enslavement did, besides the economic damage, besides the normalization of torture, of rape, besides, besides the normalization of treating people as though they are things, is the institution in the American mind that black people are necessarily inferior. In 1865, when black people were emancipated, that belief did not magically dissipate. It proceeded for 100 years afterwards. Uh, it proceeded, as I said in my testimony, well into the lifetime of uh, many panel members, uh, uh, um, Chairman, uh, sorry, Majority Leader uh, Mitch McConnell, and when there are many of the people who are here in this audience. And so it, it's not a matter of the past. These things are linked. Uh, it's been said, uh, I think, or alluded to repeatedly throughout this conversation that somehow wealthy African-Americans are immune to these effects. But in, in addition to the wealth gap that's cited, one thing that, that folks should keep in mind is that quote-unquote wealthy African-Americans are not the equivalent of quote-unquote wealthy white Americans in this country. The average, 
the average African-American family in this country making $100,000, you know, decent money, actually lives in the same kind of neighborhood that the average white family making $35,000 a year lives in. That is totally tied to the legacy of enslavement and Jim Crow and the, uh, the, uh, the input and the idea in the mind that white people and black people are somehow deserving of different things. Uh, if I injure you, the injury persists even after I actually commit the act. If I stab you, you may suffer complications long after that initial actual stabbing. If I shoot you, you may suffer complications long after that initial shooting. That's the case with African Americans. There are people well within the living memory of this country that are still suffering from the after effects of that. Thank you very much. Are you? All right. Let's be, let's let's be clear about something. Um, the first thing is. How does this work? You want to try to tell me that the reason that blacks who make $100,000 are living in neighborhoods that whites uh, who make $35,000 would live in has nothing to do with the choices of blacks. Is that what you're trying to get across? I I don't buy it. I'm black. I make $100,000. I don't live in a community uh, with whites who make $35,000 because I don't want to live in that community. I had the wherewithal to be in a different community. I chose it because of the schools, because I was planning to have children. I had one on the way when I bought my home. Now, the other thing he mentioned was, oh, well, you know what? If you do something, uh, just because you do it, it doesn't mean that uh, you know the, the effects don't last. If I stab you, that you know the the effects of that last after after uh, the stabbing occurred. Yes, same thing for shootings. Yes, to the people that you stabbed and shot. No one who lives today was stabbed or shot by slavery. You want there to be a lasting effect for a wound that nobody suffered. That's part of the problem with this argument. Uh, as I told you, um, Danny Glover testified. He said nothing, so I'm not going to present anything that he said to you. Two other gentlemen, though, did. One is Coleman Hughes, and then there was also Burgess Owens. I'm going to go to Coleman Hughes first because we kind of go in, in grades here. You have uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, who's all in favor of coming up with money to pay for these alleged um, after effects of a wrong not suffered. Also, now you have Coleman Hughes, who is trying to straddle the fence, in my opinion. And I've always told people the only thing in the middle of the road are painted lines and what dies there. You're going to make everybody mad when you can't take a side. You'll make one side mad if you take a side. You're going to make everybody mad when you can't. And this gentleman, I believe, couldn't take a side. Thank you, Chairman Cohen, Ranking Member Johnson, and members of the committee. It's an honor to testify on a topic as important as this one. Nothing I'm about to say is meant to minimize the horror and brutality of slavery and Jim Crow. Racism is a bloody stain on this country's history, and I consider our failure to pay reparations directly to freed slaves after the Civil War 
to be one of the greatest injustices ever perpetrated by the U.S. government. But I worry that our desire to fix the past compromises our ability to fix the present. Think about what we're doing today. We're spending our time debating a bill that mentions slavery 25 times, but incarceration only once, in an era with no black slaves, but nearly a million black prisoners. A bill that doesn't mention homicide once, at a time when the Center for Disease Control reports homicide as the number one cause of death for young black men. I'm not saying that acknowledging history doesn't matter. It does. I'm saying there's a difference between acknowledging history and allowing history to distract us from the problems we face today. In 2008, the House of Representatives formally apologized for slavery and Jim Crow. In 2009, the Senate did the same. Black people don't need another apology. We need safer neighborhoods and better schools. We need a less punitive criminal justice system. We need affordable health care. And none of these things can be achieved through reparations for slavery. Nearly everyone close to me, nearly everyone close to me told me not to testify today. They told me that even though I've only ever voted for Democrats, I'd be perceived as a Republican and therefore hated by half the country. Others told me that by distancing myself from Republicans, I would end up angering the other half of the country. And the sad truth is that they were both right. That's how suspicious we've become of one another. That's how divided we are as a nation. If we were to pay reparations today, we would only divide the country further, making it harder to build the political coalitions required to solve the problems facing black people today. We would insult many black Americans by putting a price on the suffering of their ancestors. And we would turn the relationship between black Americans and white Americans from a coalition into a transaction, from a union between citizens into a lawsuit between plaintiffs and defendants. What we should do is pay reparations to black Americans who actually grew up under Jim Crow and were directly harmed by second-class citizenship, people like my grandparents. But paying reparations to all descendants of slaves is a mistake. Take me, for example. I was born three decades after the end of Jim Crow into a privileged household in the suburbs. I attend an Ivy League school. Yet I'm also descended from slaves who worked on Thomas Jefferson's Monticello plantation. So reparations for slavery would allocate federal resources to me, but not to an American with the wrong ancestry, even if that person is living paycheck to paycheck and working multiple jobs to support a family. You might call that justice. I call it justice for the dead at the price of justice for the living. I understand that reparations are about what people are owed, regardless of how well they're doing. I understand that. But the people who are owed for slavery are no longer here, and we are not entitled to collect on their debts. Reparations, by definition, are only given to victims. So the moment you give me reparations, you've made me into a victim without my consent. Not just that, you've made one-third of black Americans who poll against reparations into victims without their consent. And black Americans have fought too long for the right to define themselves to be spoken for in such a condescending manner. The question is not what America owes me by virtue of my ancestry. The question is what all Americans owe each other by 
by virtue of being citizens of the same nation. And the obligation of citizenship is not transactional. It's not contingent on ancestry. It never expires, and it can't be paid off. For all these reasons, Bill H.R. 40 is a moral and political mistake. Thank you. So do we pay it? Do we not pay it? Do we pay it to some? Do we not pay it to everybody? Dudes all over the map, which is very unsatisfying. You try to listen to something that you can agree to in the position and find in the next sentence something with which you cannot agree. Finally, um, we heard from Burgess Owens, a former uh, professional football player uh, turned entrepreneur, who is against reparations, um, as is John, uh, as was Coleman Hughes, but he was actually he actually took it a little bit further. He's against he's against reparations from. Well, I'll let you. I'll let him tell you. Once you're recognized for five minutes. Thank you so much for, for this opportunity. Um, I'm going to take a different tack from the beginning. Uh, we are at this point, this is not about black and white, uh, rich or poor, blue collar, white collar. We're fighting for the heart and soul of our nation. We have a very, very special country that started with the Judeo-Christian values that allowed every single generation to become better than the last. And that has not ended, that has not stopped until now. We're telling our kids a little bit something different, that they don't have the opportunities that we had. I'm going to talk about some ideologies. When I talk about them, I'm not talking about people. People change. I used to be a Democrat until I did my history and found out the, 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 the misery that that party brought to my race. So when I talk about these ideologies, ideologies don't change. People do. We were fighting for the heart and soul of our nation against socialism, Marxism, and the evil that it has brought to us in the stealing of our history. Karl Marx said it best. The uh, author, the father of socialism, an atheist, anti-Semite, and a blatant racist. Here we teach his philosophy in our school systems today. He said it. The first battleground is rewriting of our, our history. You steal our history. You steal our pride in our past, our appreciation for our present, and our vision for our future. And every single urban city in our country is now experiencing that loss. Real quick history, because these are things we're not taught. I'm blessed to be a great-great-grandfather of Silas Burgess. Came here in the belly of a slave ship. So was in Charleston, South Carolina with his mother. To the Burgess plantation. An evil, evil man that drove my, my great-great-great-grandmother either to leaving her family or kids or uh, committing suicide. I don't know. She disappeared. But South at eight of age, eight, age of eight, was blessed to be surrounded by men who believed in freedom. Even though they were shackled, they escaped. They went the southern route of the Underground Railroad, facilitated by white and Mexican-Americans. And he's made his way out south to Texas. He ended up being a successful entrepreneur, owned 102 acres of land, paid off in two years. Started the first black church, the first black elementary school. Filled of his community, 18 kids, Christian, Republican. His first son was Alpha Omega. Proud American. An example of what happens when any race, any culture is given hope, opportunity, and freedom. It didn't end there, by the way. The history of our black country, of our black Americans, has been stolen from us for decades. Almost over a century. Booker T. Washington, 1882, began 
Tuskegee University. By 1905, it was producing more self-made black millionaires than Harvard, Yale, and Princeton combined. The 40s, 50s, and 60s, it was a black, country, a black community that led our country in the growth of the middle class, led our country in terms of men committed to marriage, over 70%, now it's 30%. Led our country in terms of the we're committed to business ownership, 40%, now it's 3.8%. Men matriculated from college. We now have more, a higher percentage of men in, 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 incarcerated in college. It is, by the way, my degree was biology. And that, I learned a long time ago that slavery is not a gene in the DNA helix. It's our actions. It's our attitude. It's our belief. I do not believe in reparation. Because what reparation does, it points to a certain race, a certain color, and, and it points them as evil and points the other race, my race, as one that is not only becomes racist, but they're they, also beggars. I do believe in restitution. Let's point to the party that was, that was part of slavery, KKK, Jim Crow, that has killed over 40% of our black babies, 20 million of them. State of California, 70, 75% of our black boys cannot pass standard reading and writing tests, a democratic state. So yes, let's play rest, 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 restoration. Let's play rest, restitution. How about a Democratic Party pay for all the misery brought to my race? And uh, those, after, after we learn our history, decide to uh, stay there, they, they should pay also, they're complicit. And every white American, Republican or Democrat, that feels guilty because of your white skin, you should need to pony up also. That way we can get past this reparation and recognize that this country has given us greatness. Look at this panel. It doesn't matter how we think. The fact is, well, it doesn't matter our color. We have become successful in this country like no other because of this great opportunity to live the American dream. Let's not steal that from our kids by telling them they can't do it. Thank you. The good thing about Mr. Owen's testimony is all the examples he showed before anybody decided to get into um, the discussion of, of reparations again is how successful blacks could be without it and had been. Let me tell you the real deal about reparations. The U.S. government owes black people nothing because the U.S. government had nothing to do with slavery. The federal government did not authorize slavery. It was neutral on slavery. It did not support. It did not condone. It did not condemn. Those were state issues. Those were state laws. The federal government did not, until the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment were passed, the federal government did not have the authority to tell the states what to do within their borders. They did not. The federal government chose to, as a result of the 1860 election and the secession of 10 states, they chose to go to war, and it was the issue of slavery. And guess what? At the end of that war, the federal government spent hundreds of thousands of lives, payment enough. The South spent hundreds of thousands of lives as well. State constitutions were rewritten. The federal constitution was rewritten improperly, but rewritten just the same. All this to eliminate and eradicate the practice of chattel slavery from the United States of America. They did that. 
If the United States of America, the federal government did not institute slavery and it did not, then why would the federal government want to give reparations to anything over something it had nothing to do with? doesn't work. Also, let's remember this. Only 6% of Americans at any time ever owned slaves, and 40% of the country today can trace its ancestry to Ellis Island, people who entered through there. And Ellis Island wasn't open until the 1890s, more than two decades after the Civil War had ended. Those people had nothing. The overwhelming majority of people never had a thing to do with slavery. And therefore, trying to make them come up with the money to pay for a wrong that's not even being suffered anymore is ridiculous. That's the only word for it. It is ridiculous. Am I surprised that we're having this debate? No. Am I surprised that the people involved are doing this? No. Why am I not surprised? I'll go back to what I opened this with. As Booker T. Washington said, there is another class of colored people who make a business of keeping the troubles, the wrongs, and the hardships of the Negro race before the public. Having learned that they are able to make a living out of their troubles, They have grown into the settled habit of advertising their wrongs, partly because they want sympathy and partly because it pays. Some of these people do not want the Negro to lose his grievances because they do not want to lose their jobs. And with that, I'm going to turn this over to my good friend, Ron Edwards, and then we'll be back with Hour 2 of Black Man Thinking. No, Supremes, you need to stop in the name of love for country. Hello, I'm Ron Edwards on today's page from the Edwards Notebook. Once again, the U.S. Supreme Court chickened out, this time regarding a question that should be posted in the upcoming U.S. Census. The Supremes blocked for now the Trump administration's correct plan to include a question on the 2020 U.S. Census that simply inquires about a person's citizenship status. The ruling not only marks a politically motivated setback for President Trump, but more importantly for the republic as a whole. The Supreme Court ruling maintains the ability of leftists to cheat in the election process, so illegal border crossers can vote for leftist Democrats who are focused like a laser beam on their mission to literally repeat, on a grander scale, the evil, destructive madness they inflicted upon the American black community. Let's not forget... Approximately 97,000 illegals in Texas voted in recent elections. I'm Ron Edwards. Make sure to join me Fridays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific on americamatters.us and the Edwards Notebook on great radio stations like WGUL Tampa, Florida, overnights during the Captain's America Third Watch. Ron Edwards, the new voice of America. Sponsored by the Tri-County Liberty Coalition. Black men thinking. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. The only way they can inherit the freedom we have known is if we fight for it, protect it, defend it, and then hand it to them with the well-taught lessons of how they in their lifetime must do the same. 
black man's thinking. Anytime you throw your weight behind a political party that controls two-thirds of the government and that party can't keep the promise that it made to you during election time and you are dumb enough to walk around continuing to identify yourself with that party, you're not only a chump, but you're a traitor to your race. Black men's thinking. If we lose freedom here, there's no place to escape to. This is the last stand on earth. And this idea that government is beholden to the people, that it has no other source of power except the sovereign people, is still the newest and the most unique idea in all the long history of man's relation to man. Whether we believe in our capacity for self-government or whether we abandon the American Revolution and confess that a little intellectual elite in a far distant capital can plan our lives for us better than we can plan them ourselves. Black men thinking. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Black men thinking. thinking. Stanley Levy with Hour 2 of Black Men Thinking here on our new flagship station, the vanguard of personal freedom, personal liberty, and personal responsibility, Mojo 50 Radio. Also, WDDQ, Talk 92.1 FM in Valdosta, Georgia. WJHC, Talk 107.5 North Florida Talk Radio. FreedomInAmericaRadio.com. And WLBB, News Talk AM 1330 and FM 106.3 in Carrollton, Georgia. Well, while the Democrats are doing nothing of note, to to be honest with you, um, either running for president or they recently capitulated, in the Congress, the House capitulated to the Senate in passing um, appropriations to deal with the situation at the border, which they're now calling a crisis. Now, if it's a crisis, I wonder why they objected to the president declaring an emergency, but that's a different topic. North Korea. It's amazing the things that Donald Trump is able to do when he leaves this country. You may recall he recently visited the UK and started to win over people there. Now he's been in Asia for a few days and he pulled off some interesting things, but most specifically with North Korea, that relationship has gone very differently than anyone on the left or in the U.S. media would have would have anticipated. How many of you recall this? North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. He has been very threatening uh, beyond a normal statement. And as I said, they will be met with fire, fury, and frankly, power, the likes of which this world has never seen before. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Trump was um, roundly and greatly criticized. By uh, for making those statements, uh, you, you're a warmonger. You're going to get us in nuclear war with North Korea. Uh, what are you doing? Of course, at the time, North Korea was firing uh, nuclear missiles. Well, not nuclear missiles. They were firing ballistic missiles uh, over Japan into the Pacific Ocean. They were being very threatening. They were flexing their muscle, um, making different statements about war and their nuclear capabilities. Now, that statement was made in August of 2017. The very next month, the president showed up at the U.N., and how many of you remember this? No one has shown more contempt for other nations and for the well-being of their own people than the depraved regime in North Korea. 
It is responsible for the starvation deaths of millions of North Koreans and for the imprisonment, torture, killing, and oppression of countless more. We were all witness to the regime's deadly abuse when an innocent American college student, Otto Warmbier, was returned to America only to die a few days later. We saw it in the assassination of the dictator's brother using banned nerve agents in an international airport. We know it kidnapped a sweet 13-year-old Japanese girl from a beach in her own country to enslave her as a language tutor for North Korea's spies. If this is not twisted enough, now North Korea's reckless pursuit of nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles threatens the entire world with unthinkable loss of human life. It is an outrage that some nations would not only trade with such a regime, but would arm, supply, and financially support a country that imperils the world with nuclear conflict. No nation on Earth has an interest in seeing this band of criminals arm itself with nuclear weapons and missiles. The United States has great strength and patience, but if it is forced to defend itself for its allies, we will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea. Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself and for his regime. The United States is ready, willing, and able, but hopefully this will not be necessary. That's what the United Nations is all about. That's what the United Nations is for. Let's see how they do. Rocket Man? Totally destroy North Korea? After promising fire and fury? You would think that these guys really aren't going to get along at, at all. And, of course, the U.S. press was loving this. Loving it not because that it was good, but it was proving to all of them that Donald Trump is crazy. How do you talk to North Korea like this? No president would ever talk to North Korea like this. In fact, CNN... Um, this past Sunday, pulled out a little show of history of the relationship between Trump and Kim and actually had the totally incompetent April Ryan along for the ride as though she knows anything other than the correct spelling of her own name. But this is what they had to say about the evolution of the Trump-Kim relationship. So the journey to today's meeting in the DMC has been a long one for President Trump and Kim Jong-un. They've exchanged lots of insults over the years. President Trump calling him Little Rocket Man. We remember that one. Yeah, I remember when Kim sent uh, everyone looking for a dictionary when he called President Trump a dotard. I still don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I don't know. I don't know. Well, it's defined by Merriam-Webster as a person in a state or period of senile decay. Here's a look back at the evolution of the relationship between President Trump and Chairman Kim Jong-un. Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself and for his regime. And we can't have madmen out there shooting rockets all over the place. Rocket Man should have been handled a long time ago. North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury. We had a great meeting, great chemistry. We got along really well, which is very important. They didn't want us to, but, they, you know, it's like nice to do that. They wanted the sanctions lifted in their entirety, and we couldn't do that. We had to 
uh, walk away from that. This wasn't a walk away like you get up and walk out. No, this was very friendly. Uh, we shook hands. We, uh, you know, there's a, there's a warmth that we have. Now, I hope that stays. I think it will. A long way. Let's bring in White House correspondent for American Urban Radio Networks and CNN political analyst April Ryan. April, you know, what stood out to me is the president there said um, that he's inviting Kim Jong-un to the White House, right? Um, yes. We'll remember that the president also invited President Putin to the White House ahead of the 2018 midterms. That didn't happen, still hasn't happened. In this climate, in the U.S. Um, political environment, ahead of elections, Kim Jong-un coming to, to the White House, is that even realistic? Well, the president wants to make it reality, uh, but at issue is what tangible will this bring if there is a meeting? There are people who do not want Kim Jong-un in the United States, let alone the White House. Um, you know, I remember a time when uh, North Korea was considered part of the axis of evil. So the mindset has definitely changed for this president. But uh, for the intelligence community, it's, you know, it's not about the optics. It's about the substance. What can change? What can happen? What does denuclearization look like for Kim Jong-un? So it's not about the optics. The president keeps talking about the pictures and, and, and those 20 historic steps. That was a picture. That was a great moment. But the real issue is what can happen because Kim Jong-un is still firing off short-range missiles. Well, not only that, but Kim Jong-un will go home and he might frame this differently. How do you think he's going to script right. this in North Korea and will that make a difference right. as to how we move forward? Christy, that's very interesting you would say that. Um, I talked to several people from the national intelligence community, uh, people who've worked with various administrations, and they're saying the optics of it, um, you know, yes, we had this, this great moment, but it looks like in the national intelligence community, and that's on this side, and I'm sure Kim Jong-un will play it that way uh, in, in North Korea, but what it looks like for these people, they're saying that it looks like the president is running after Kim Jong-un instead of the opposite of Kim Jong-un running after us. Mm. You know, uh, the president... Uh he likes that demarcation line of after his election yeah. and before his election. And he talked about uh, the DMZ. He said that after he was elected, after the, the Singapore summit, the danger went away and that it was a mess before he got into office. We remember the propaganda messages from those speakers mm -hmm. being blared across the DMZ. But you were there in the Obama administration. How, how did you receive the president's characterization of pre-Trump um, DMZ North Korea? Um, you know, I watched, I looked at Ben Rhodes' tweet this morning, the tweet that you even replayed. I, I think I even retweeted it. Um, this president has his own reality. Um, president Obama really looked to diplomacy and trying to work it out with, uh, with Kim Jong-un the best way he could. Um, I'm not saying that he did the right thing or he did the wrong thing. But each administration that I've seen over the last 22 years has dealt with North Korea in a different way than they've dealt with, than this president deals with it. Um, you know, again, the question is, you know, if you stand off and not meet with Kim Jong-un, what happens? If you meet with Kim Jong-un, what happens? So we're still at a standstill. Nothing has happened yet. We just yeah. got pictures. We need to see substance. You know, um, White House Press Secretary uh, Stephanie Grisham was injured, and, I mean, it was chaotic. You could see it there. Um, I, just wondering, you know, what your thoughts are as to, I mean, talking about having to jump into a job right away. 
Yeah, and she did. She did. Um, I felt sorry for her. I saw yeah. that. I saw the video this morning that you guys played. What happens is, whenever we have foreign press getting together, be it at the White House or be it overseas, there is a hyper-aggressiveness uh, to try to get that winning picture, get those pictures of the leaders. This was a historic moment, nonetheless. But really at issue is the fact that Stephanie Grisham got caught in a situation where this was planned at the last minute. And when you do last minute, and you don't have really 24 hours, more than 24 hours, to really put it together, things like this happen when you have a very hyper-aggressive group of people from both sides of the world, be it U.S. press or be it that from North Korea or South Korea or the DMZ, wherever. So yeah. it was a very hyper-aggressive situation, and she got caught in the fact that this administration planned it in this bit of time. So they remember all the insults, and there were insults passed back and forth. They don't they don't seem to min- mention the uh, the fact that there was a time when North Korea was on a regular basis launching missiles that went over our ally Japan into the ocean beyond those islands, raising extreme concern. They don't seem to remember that uh, Kim Jong-un threatened Guam. In their recounting of the relationship, they kind of left all that out. And they don't seem to understand that the way Donald Trump has dealt with Kim Jong-un has actually worked out to the benefit of the United States. Perhaps you forgot back in April, I believe it was two of 2018, that the president of South Korea, having been able to have his own summit with Kim Jong-un after Donald Trump had kicked him around and ruffled him up and everything else in the press, said Donald Trump deserved the Nobel Peace Prize. And Ms. Ryan, who doesn't know crap from Shinola is saying we're looking for something concrete from this relationship between between Trump and Kim. Did they forget what happened in June of 2018? In a solemn ceremony in South Korea, 55 small wooden boxes were unloaded, wrapped in the blue UN flag, the flag U.S. troops fought under in the Korean War. Inside, what are believed to be the remains of American servicemen who died, missing in action, but not forgotten. Around 5,300 are still classified as missing in North Korea. For their relatives today, like the son of Lieutenant Hal Downs, closure may finally be coming. We've been waiting a long time for things like this to happen. And it's the beginning, uh, not an ending. It's an achievement for President Trump. At his summit in June, the North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un, promised to send home American remains. President Trump today. And I want to thank Chairman Kim for keeping his word. These incredible American heroes will soon lay at rest on sacred American soil. North Korea has also reportedly begun to dismantle a rocket launch site. We visited while it was still operational. This is what U.S. officials are so concerned about. North Korea says this rocket is strictly for scientific purposes. But today was about honoring those who fell on a foreign battlefield and never came home. The next stop, Hawaii, for detailed DNA identification that could take months. Richard Engel, NBC News. You forgot about that because that was the result of Donald Trump trash-talking a trash talker. See, here's the interesting thing. Um, Other American presidents didn't get the Kim family. They didn't get Kim Jong-un. And Kim Jong-un is not a contemporary of Donald Trump. There's at least four decades difference in age between these two gentlemen. 
But Donald Trump actually seems to understand people quite well because he understood what button to push to turn this madman in his behavior into someone who actually behaved as a friend. I find that fascinating. How this meeting today, I mean, well, Sunday, I believe it was, in North Korea, all of a sudden, Donald Trump was at the G20 meeting. The next thing you know, he's standing at the DMZ. How did that come about, by the way? ABC filed this report. President Trump touching down in South Korea just a short while ago after having extended an apparently impromptu high-stakes Twitter invitation to the leader of North Korea. Yeah, Trump inviting Kim Jong-un to come meet him later today for a handshake at the DMZ, the border between North and South Korea. The question, though, will Kim show up? And if not, is it a major diplomatic snub? Overnight, the president left Japan where he was attending the G20 summit. He had a crucial meeting with the leader of China as the two countries teeter on the edge of a trade war. He also commented on the Democratic presidential debates. ABC's chief White House correspondent John Carl starts us off from Japan. Good morning, Eva. After his meetings with a series of world leaders here at the G20 in Japan, the president held a remarkable press conference here that lasted for well over an hour, questions on a wide range of topics, including his potential meeting with Kim Jong-un. President Trump seems to think Kim Jong-un just might accept his impromptu invitation. I understand that we may be meeting with Chairman King, Kim, uh, and uh, we'll find out. The president had extended the invitation on Twitter just hours earlier. Well, it might happen tomorrow. I mean, to be honest, we won't call it a summit. We'll call it a handshake. And if it doesn't happen, will be a bad sign if he doesn't show up. No, uh, of course I thought of that because I know if he didn't, everybody's going to say, "Oh, he was stood up by Chairman Kim." No, I, I understood that. Uh, it's very hard to. He follows my Twitter. And he does. It's, it's very hard. He, yeah, he follows I, I guess Twitter. so because we got to call very quickly. The president said he would even be willing to make the symbolic gesture of stepping over the line and onto North Korean soil, something no other U.S. president has ever done. Sure, I would. I would I'd feel very comfortable doing that. I would have no problem. On his high-stakes meeting with the president of China, an apparent truce in the trade war as talks we continue. Had, we had a great meeting. And we will be continuing to negotiate. And I promise that uh, for at least the time being, we're not going to be lifting tariffs on China. We won't be adding an additional, uh, you know, tremendous amount of, we have, I guess, $350 billion left, uh, which could be taxed or could be tariffed. And we're not doing that. A Chinese reporter asked if he thinks China is a strategic partner, a competitor, or an enemy. I think we're going to be uh, strategic partners. I think we can help each other. I think in the end we can have If the right deal is structured, we can be great for each other. If China would open up, you're opening up a tremendous, you know, the largest market in the world. And right now China's not open to the United States, but we're open to China. That should have never really been allowed to happen. And even from the other side of the world, the president was keeping an eye on the Democratic debates. Um, I'm sure you saw the exchange between Joe Biden and Kamala Harris on the issue of federal busing. Uh, well, first of all, before I get into that, I thought that uh, she was given too much credit. Uh, he didn't do well, certainly. Uh, and maybe the facts weren't necessarily on his side. I think she was given too much credit for what she did. If the president has a meeting with Kim Jong-un in the demilitarized zone, it would likely be a very short one. He suggested a handshake, uh, but he also made it clear he is open to a third full summit with Kim. What? All right, we'll see if that happens. John Carl reporting from Japan. Thank you. Well, it did happen, but let, let, let's back up a minute. Wait a minute. We go from calling him Rocket Man, being called a dotard, um, 
different things going back and forth, very inflammatory to summits, to other meetings, to letters being exchanged, to the guy being able to put a tweet out there and get a phone call back from Kim so they can meet at the DMC within 24 hours? And all the while, Trump has told you that he has a very good relationship with Kim Jong-un. He's told you this. But you believe the media. Let me help you out. Donald Trump, while he was in Asia doing other things, put out a tweet. And the North Korean leader follow, who follows Donald Trump on Twitter read that and said, yeah, let's get together at the DMC. And this is what happened. Good evening. I'm Vladimir Dutin. President Trump is flying back to Washington, D.C. tonight after wrapping up a four-day trip to Asia with a big show of faith on the Korean Peninsula. Weijia Jang is in Seoul. The buildup was dramatic. President Trump and North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un walked toward each other from opposite sides of the joint security area in the DMZ, the demilitarized border zone that separates North and South Korea. Then a handshake before the president's single footstep made him the first sitting U.S. president to enter North Korea. We were in Japan for the G20. We came over and I said, hey, I'm over here. I want to call up Chairman Kim. And we got to meet, and uh, stepping across that line was a great honor. Kim said the historic moment showed Mr. Trump's willingness to eliminate the unfortunate past and open a new future. Afterward, the two leaders met inside what's known as the Freedom House for nearly one hour. This was a special moment. Uh, this is, I think, really, as uh, President Moon said, this is a historic moment, the fact that we're meeting. The meeting unfolded after Mr. Trump tweeted yesterday an invitation for Kim to meet, to say hello and shake hands. CBS News has learned the president did not give his staff much notice about the tweet, but he has talked about wanting the DMZ rendezvous for at least a year. Kim said he was surprised by the president's invitation, even though the two had recently rekindled their relationship. After their second summit in February ended early, without a deal for Pyongyang to give up its nuclear program and dismantle its weapons. Sometimes you have to walk. Despite coming back together in an unprecedented way, reaching an agreement remains a challenge. The president said economic sanctions on the North would stay in place, though he seemed open to lifting some of them in return for North Korean concessions. They're saying, oh, I mean, at some point, look, I'm looking forward to taking them off. I don't like sanctions being on this country. I'm looking forward, but the sanctions remain, yes. But at some point during the negotiation, things can happen. President Trump said negotiating teams would resume talks in two or three weeks, led by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, even though in April North Korea demanded Pompeo be removed from the negotiations. The president also said he would invite Kim to visit the White House, but did not say when. Vlad? All right, Weijia Jang in Seoul. Thank you. Have you figured it out now? They've been lying to you all along. The American press has been lying to you all along about the nature of the relationship between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. They are so tight that Donald Trump, even though he's the president of the United States, and Kim Jong-un, bad as he is, leader of another country, Donald Trump can just send out a tweet and they can just hook up in 24 hours. Who else can do that with anyone on that level of government? How do you go from being someone who threatens to destroy someone's nation to being able to send out a tweet, hey, let's hook up over at the DMZ, at the D, at the demilitarized zone? Are you serious? 
Donald Trump is a flipping genius. He understands people better than the media. He understands people better than the U.S. intelligence agencies who would never want a president to do this. Why? Because it means that they no longer control the narrative. Oh, when they walked away from things in February, it was terrible. It was? Donald Trump said it wasn't terrible. He just said, hey, we didn't get what we wanted, so he walked away. Everything was fine. If things were so bad, why would Kim Jong-un follow him on Twitter and be able to respond? Guys, Donald Trump is a genius in dealing with people, in reading people, in positioning people for the benefit of the United States of America. And if you haven't figured that out yet, you really do need help. Stanley Levy, Black Man Thinking, we'll be back right after this. I have a dream. One day, this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created. Black Man Thinking. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. The only way they can inherit the freedom we have known is if we fight for it, protect it, defend it, and then hand it to them with the well-taught lessons of how they in their lifetime must do the same. Black men thinking. Anytime you throw your weight behind a political party that controls two-thirds of the government and that party can't keep the promise that it made to you during election time and you are dumb enough to walk around continuing to identify yourself with that party, you're not only a chump, but you're a traitor to your race. Black men thinking. If we lose freedom here, there's no place to escape to. This is the last stand on earth. And this idea that government is beholden to the people, that it has no other source of power except the sovereign people, is still the newest and the most unique idea in all the long history of man's relation to man. Whether we believe in our capacity for self-government or whether we abandon the American Revolution and confess that a little intellectual elite in a far distant capital can plan our lives for us better than we can plan them ourselves. Black men thinking. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Black Men Thinking. thinking, thinking. Stanley Levy, Black Men Thinking, here on the vanguard of personal freedom, personal liberty, and personal responsibility, our new flagship, Mojo 5 Radio. Also, WDDQ, Talk 92.1 FM and Dalton. Dasta, Georgia, WJHC, Talk 107.5, North Florida Talk Radio, Freedom in America Radio.com, and WLBB News Talk, AM 1330 and FM 106.3 in Carrollton, Georgia. Final segment of the show, Blacks running out of time and out of people. Well, what do I mean? I mean we're getting to the point where we're running out of real black folks. Because real black folks, let me be clear, they abhor homosexuality. It doesn't mean they necessarily uh, scorn homosexuals. They're not, you know, they're not, they're not out to encourage anybody into homosexuality. They're not actually looking for them at the corner to beat them up, unless you're somebody who got hired by Jesse Smollett. And they oppose homosexuality. They abhor it. They find it, they find it distasteful because it is anti-family. You can't, you can't have families if you're not willing to engage in the process that creates them. 
Families are not created. Families are created by heterosexual activity that results in procreation. That's how families are built. This isn't new. This isn't novel. Another thing that real black folks aren't really comfortable with, as a matter of fact, they oppose it very strongly, is the killing of children, particularly their children, including unborn children. And they do that for very obvious reasons. Killing children, particularly in the womb, heralds the death of your people. You're not going to live forever. And real black people would rather sacrifice their own lives than abandon those of their children, including the unborn. Now, let's be very upfront about this. What I just said is not limited to the black community. It just appears that abandoning those tenants has had a disproportionate impact upon blacks in the United States of America. And this impact, to be honest with you, I don't believe it was really in place except for the last 40 years. And with homosexuality, to be honest with you, I think it's been less time than that. It's just accelerated massively. So let me just recap this. Homosexuality is anti-family. Period. Abortion is a death knell to a culture. Now, white progressives are very well aware of how the black community felt, but they are consumed with an abiding, overwhelming, and pitying contempt for people who don't look like them. Consequently, they want blacks to abandon their opposition to homosexuality and abortion, even though they know that eventually it's going to destroy them. And why did they want that instead of a more direct approach, like just going out and killing blacks? Well, we had slavery. Blacks died at pretty high clip during slavery. Black lives were not counted um, as very valuable at that time. Jim Crow didn't necessarily increase the value of black lives either. But neither slavery nor Jim Crow could break the black family. It didn't destroy blacks. The stick, if you will, could not be used to beat the black family into submission. Progressives, being the clever group that they are, decided they would come up with a carrot approach. So where the stick was unable to bludgeon blacks into destruction from without, they were looking to see if they could corrupt them and destroy them from within. 1964 was a watershed moment in that effort to destroy black people. It was the year that President Lyndon Baines Johnson announced his war on poverty, which turned into a war on the nuclear black family. Within a year, they had enough information about the anti-poverty programs, their effect on negative effect, that is, on the black nuclear family, that it was captured in a document called the Moynihan Report. They knew what it was doing. 
But those anti-poverty programs also secured a lot of votes. Giving people money. And they were giving that money to black females, not black men. And they were paying them in many cases to make sure the black men stayed out of the stayed out of the home where the black children lived. So you started having a government policy of paternal estrangement. And you monetized it. And then they started to see from that what they had observed that slavery and Jim Crow could not achieve. The destruction of black people from within as their women turned against their men and turned those children also against those men and turned those men away from their responsibilities. The acceptance of homosexuality and abortion has become the bleach, as it were, that progressives have used to remove the last stains of humanity that blacks had for each other. I want to play something for you. A Catholic organization, EWTN, did a, had an interview with a black pastor last year, last July. He's talking about abortion and how devastating it is for blacks. Now, again, abortion is devastating for anyone, but the amount of devastation really depends on the extent to which you embrace it. And unfortunately, blacks have embraced it much more than anyone Anyone should, to be honest with you. Here's their report. In more news, an article in the Wall Street Journal last week spotlighted a topic often ignored in the nation, the alarming abortion rate for African Americans in the United States. Wall Street Journal columnist Jason Riley wrote a piece last week titled, Let's Talk About the Black Abortion Rate. Riley explored how in New York City, thousands more black babies are aborted than born alive each year. And he highlighted how on the national level, Black women terminate pregnancies at far higher rates than other women. Look at these numbers. In 2014, black women made up 13% of the U.S. female population. But 36% of all abortions were performed on black women. I spoke on this exact topic, the alarming black abortion rate, with a pro-life leader earlier this year. Pastor Clenard Howard Childress Jr. is senior pastor of New Calvary Baptist Church and assistant to the director at LEARN the Life Education and Resource Network. He coined the phrase that the most dangerous place for an African-American is in the womb. We go now to our interview with Pastor Childress to hear why. Well, first, it's not hyperbole. It's not a radical rant from a right-wing reverend. It is a sociological fact. Mm. Uh, 52% of all African-American pregnancies end in abortion, 1,786 a day. And since 1973, over 20 million African-Americans have been killed by abortion alone. So it is not uh, anything to be used uh, lightly. It is a sociological fact, and it's happening on our watch, and I'm grieved over that. And you are bringing that truth to the urban areas, speaking with young people. Tell us about your strategy and your technique. 
Well, first, with today's young people, just be honest, sincere, and mm -hmm. tell the truth. Don't be afraid of the differences in the generations. But unquestionably, they need to know that they've been lied to. Mm -hmm. And they need to know that this is a great deception that's being played out. And unquestionably, they need to know that it's going to affect them for the rest of their lives. Uh, institutions like Planned Parenthood are targeting African-Americans, women, as well as men who are a part of the problem also. But when you have a, an, a situation where it's going to affect your children later on, it's going to affect your ability to have mm -hmm. children, it's going to affect your psychological view, indeed, on life itself. 85% of women who have abortions have some type of psychological malady. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of pain in our pews, and the clergy need to step up and recognize those women are in your pews. You need to shepherd them and sound the alarm of what's happening at the rate of 1,786 a day. And you're doing that as pastor. Yes, it has to be. <laughs> right. You were heavily featured in a recent PBS documentary called the anti-abortion crusaders inside the African-American abortion battle. Yes. Let's take a look at it. We're going to talk about the notorious Planned Parenthood. You're being told to go to Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood has a plan for you, especially you young ladies. Planned Parenthood is taking it far beyond what the Ku Klux Klan ever thought they could possibly take it. What did you make of PBS's frontline portrayal of the pro-life movement within the black community? Well, I was pleasantly surprised at their fairness. Uh, and the key thing of that, one, is they said our data is true. Many people believe we're making up the data. And secondly, she noted that Margaret Sanger, the founding mother, so to speak, of Planned Parenthood, was a devout racist. And in this age of political correctness, if a uh, historian who isn't even for the life movement and who is pro-choice, right. Ms. Greenleaf, says, indeed, Margaret Sanger is a racist, then why are we giving out the Margaret Sanger Award? Why is Planned Parenthood insisting that her bust stay in the portrait galley at our Smithsonian? Those are taxpayer dollars going to support that. And in the age, once again, of political correctness and racial sensitivity, <clears throat> why are you upholding a devout racist as a role model for other women and other politicians? It's shocking. And, Pastor, talking about abortion is a tough issue on its own. And now we're throwing the race element into it. Mm -hmm. What advice do you have for our viewers so they can boldly speak the truth mm -hmm. that abortion is hurting the black community? Well, I often come from the civil rights perspective. I think we all have a common enemy, a common goal, common God. When talking with the African-American community, we have to recognize that this is a segment of our community whose rights are being denied. It's the same platform Martin Luther King took. Hmm. We're not holding these truths to be self-evident, uh, that all mankind was created equal, endowed by the Creator, not mom or dad, but God, to certain inalienable rights among these life, liberty, and the pursuit. There is a, over 20 million African Americans and over 50 or 60 million since 1973 that were denied the right, the access to the American dream. That's a great social injustice and something that the church should be grieving over. Pastor Clannard Howard Childress Jr., thank you for being here. Thank you for having me very much. More than 1,700 children per day. More children killed in the womb in a New York than born alive. Every year, 85% of females who undergo an abortion procedure have psychological maladies. Of course they do. Someone reached inside of you and violated 
a spiritual covenant that you had formed with God, even if your pregnancy was not um, brought about by sex within the marriage covenant. God nevertheless decided to grant conception, because only God can do that. And you allowed some someone else to reach inside you and destroy what God had placed there for you to nurture and bring forth. And you think that's not going to affect you emotionally. You think that's not going to affect you spiritually. Yes, spiritually. No, abortion messes women up, not physically. Most women have no issues physically with abortion. But the pregnancy, the sex act, the pregnancy, it, I'm sorry, it's more than physical for females. And now all of a sudden you have a group of women who really don't understand what their femininity is about. They really don't understand what their role is because someone came in and violated it. And now they really don't understand what life is about at all. They definitely don't understand how to nurture it. They obviously, and they obviously, they actually get to it, start to feel guilty about what they've done. And now maybe they don't want to have children or they're going to have guilty feelings all the... Yeah. Homosexuality is a little bit tougher. A little bit. Jackie Hill Perry is a um, hip-hop artist who wandered off into lesbianism and then found her way back. And she told, told her story in January of 2017 in this way. My childhood was, I don't want to say typical, but I think typical to those growing up in black communities. Dad was pretty much inconsistent. I saw him maybe every few years. He would just pop in, be in my life for six months, and then pop back out and just show up whenever he felt like it. My mother worked every weekend, so I would spend Sundays with my aunt, who was a Christian. Um, and so she would take me to church with her like every single Sunday, which was incredibly boring, but I enjoyed the popcorn that the kids got and the Skittles. Childhood was a mixture of abandonment but not knowing that's what that was mixed with glimpses of god through my aunt mixed with seeing my mother work hard i think middle school and high school was me chasing after love from people i wanted people to tell me that i'm something that i'm significant that i'm somebody and women i think uh, became one of the main sources of that for me I was confused. I didn't know what to do. I had these feelings that seemed very natural. These thoughts that seemed super normal to me, but I knew it wasn't normal to culture. I grew up in black church. That's like a no-no <laughs> is to be gay. And so it was projected all the time that this is not okay. But I had read the scriptures pertaining to it being a sin. And so I just believed it. I didn't try to talk myself out of it. Because to me, I felt like what I read in the scriptures was correlating with the conviction I felt. This feeling correlates with what this is saying. <laughs> it's like it's not an isolated situation. But I still didn't know how to come to terms with this is how I feel. So I'm going to do it. The things I knew about scripture, it seemed like they just would not get out of my head. It was just like God is everywhere. And it was just getting on my nerves. 
I don't want to be a Christian. I don't want to be saved. Because what I thought Christianity to be was people that just didn't do stuff. You don't listen to secular music, you wear long dresses, you go to church all the time, and you don't curse. If that's what Christianity is, I'm cool on that. I already didn't have peace, but the reminder of the truth was increasing my awareness of my lack of peace. And so I called uh, one of my cousins who was a believer, and she was like, you know what? I believe that God is going to show you how much you need him. I'm like, okay, whatever. I think over the course of some months, that's when I got arrested. My dad ended up passing away from a motorcycle accident, which really broke me because it was kind of like this realization that we'll never talk. From there, me and my mother's relationship was just like, we were not close, we were not cool. It was like everything I was doing, my entire life became uncomfortable. It became isolated, it became just lonely. When I was 19 and feeling God speak to my heart and tell me what you're doing will be the death of you. Like this is not an idea anymore that sin will kill me. It's not an idea anymore that God is not pleased with this. Like this is reality and I have to deal with it today. When I reckoned with that, I knew that I could not save myself. I knew I could not walk away from these things because I enjoyed them way too much. And so I knew from Bible study at church when I was five, you die for people like me. You said you'll forgive people like me. And so I'll just believe that. I was in a church in two weeks wearing girl clothes in a week. That was strange. I wasn't used to wearing regular bras and I had to understand how to sit like a woman again because I was used to sitting like a guy. Just relearning womanness. He did what he had to do to grab me because I would not have chose God apart from God choosing me. That is powerful on a whole lot of levels. Um, I'm not even going to try to question that but there are certain things that she said that tie into all of this because the family her family was jacked up the fact that she had issues she had daddy issues and they weren't her doing I don't know what was going on between her parents that her father was not around but he's supposed to be because when fathers aren't around for their daughters they do exactly what Jackie Hill Perry talked about. You start looking for love from people. And to be honest with you, the younger you are, the less likely you are to look for affirmation from the opposite sex. So if you're a young girl and your father's not there to tell you that you're loved by a man, you're not going to go out and seek out some six-year-old boy, some eight-year-old boy, some ten-year-old boy. Because girls and women are easier to talk to. So I fault her father. No, he didn't turn her into a homosexual. But the type of love that she talks about she found from her heavenly father, some of that could have been shown by her earthly father, and she would not necessarily have needed to be turned around later. The family matters. And there is no family without a father. There's also no family without a mother. But you can't just absent the father and think you still have a family. You just can't go and do what they've done to black people and tell them that, you know, we don't you don't need really need men. Because how many times have you heard black women come out there and say they didn't need a man? And progressives have pushed the notion that in the black community particularly Women are the real strength of that community. We need to celebrate the women. Let me help you guys out. Women did not lead the civil rights movement. 
That's not to say that there were not women who contributed mightily to that movement. But I'm sorry, women did not lead that movement. Strong black men led that movement. Medgar Evers was not a woman. Martin Luther King was not a, not a woman. Joseph Lowry was not a, a woman. Richard Abernathy was not a woman. I can go on. E.D. Nixon was not a woman. But you have it now where people actually think that black women are the strong people in the black community and black men have stepped back to the point where you can find an element of truth in that logic. And that's unfortunate. That's so unfortunate. Only government can and will solve black people's problems. That's what they've gotten people to believe because every time something's happened in the black community, they go looking for the government. What's the government going to do? When you guys, you need to pass a program, we need a program, we need this, we need a bill, you now need to spend more money. If the government could have solved problems, the fact that it exists probably means it would have never occurred in the first place, but they don't and they can't. Of course, the other thing is that they want you to believe that just accepting progressive ideology would make everything be okay. And that includes, of course, embracing the idea that homosexual rights were akin to embracing uh, civil rights and that a woman's right to kill an unborn child outweighed the, the, the right of the child to even exist. Acceptance of homosexuality and the acceptance of abortion has become the bleach progressive use or progressives use to remove the last stains of humanity that blacks have one for another. Because it's very hard, I'm, I'm being very honest, it's hard to imagine any more effective or destructive forms of self-hatred among any people, than rejecting the process of creating the next generation or of destroying that seed before it can flower within the community. That's self-hatred. But progressives have duped a disturbingly high number of blacks with these ideas. And very few are willing to see how these perverse notions of devaluing life and family contribute to the crime, the economic and educational underperformance, and quite frankly, the political impotence that blacks experience today. It kind of boils down to this. When you lose touch with the value of life and of family, you abandon hope of ever thriving as a people. And when that occurs, a pretty high number of your people are going to just say, so why try? They become selfish. They become dangerous. The fortunate thing is, real blacks remain and in significant numbers. The question is not whether that whether or not they have the right values or whether or not those values should prevail. Of course they should. 
but whether they possess the will and the love. It's going to take a lot of love to redeem those leftist blacks who can be redeemed. Do they possess the will and the love to impose those values which prize black lives and black families upon other blacks who can yet be turned from progressive perversion? I do not have the answer to that. I wish to goodness I did. But I don't. And I'm going to tell you one thing. I mean, people keep talking about the church. The church plays a role. Religion does not. This is a God thing. God does not wholly and simply reside in the church. He's omnipresent. Read Acts chapter 17, excuse me. He'll let you know. He determined the bounds of your habitation and all the places you could live. He he didn't just say, you know what, unless you come to church, I'm not going to be a part of your life. People are going to have to figure out the only way to get past what's going to try to destroy you is by appealing to the one who made you. Jackie Hill made that very, Jackie Hill Perry made that very clear. She finally abandoned what she wanted to do and went back to the one who made her who let her know that what she wanted to do wasn't going to work for her. And it wasn't going to work for black people in general. It just doesn't. This is what has to change. And it's the only thing of importance in what is known as black politics. And that's our show. May God bless. May God keep you. My prayer. And until next week, when we return on our new flagship, Mojo 5.0 Radio, do take care.